welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author most recently of Uncertain Ground and other books. Our guest today, Armand White, is a film critic for National Review and author of Make Spielberg Great Again, The Resistance, 10 Years of Pop Culture That Shook the World, and books on Michael Jackson and Prince. He won the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for Music Criticism and the American Book Award for Anti-Censorship. We'll be talking today about two chapters, two essays uh, about Spielberg from that book, and additionally, the Roxy Music record, Manifesto. And it is a, a true pleasure and an honor to have Armand on the podcast, somebody who I have been reading since I was, uh, I think, 14, maybe 15 years old, uh, when he was the film critic for New York Press. Somebody as I regard as, uh, somebody who I regard as perhaps the greatest of America's film critics today. And... Um, who will have to forgive Phil and I for our amateurishness as podcast hosts. Uh, but Armin, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for, thanks for being here. I'm gratified that you asked and happy to be here. Thank you. Great to have you on. Let me say, uh, before we get into all of this, I, I'm going to have to, you'll have to indulge me. I'm going to use my prerogative as host here to say a little bit about Armin's work and how I came to it. Uh, like I said, Armin was film critic for New York Press when it was um, what I think was the best alt-weekly in the country. Of course, I was only familiar with about three of them out of however many hundreds there were, but it was certainly the best alt-weekly in New York, which to me meant it was the best in the world. And there was something in Armin's the, the grain of criticism that he was doing that seemed to prepare me in moral aesthetic terms for what was going to happen 20 odd years later uh, when, you know, secular liberalism collapsed in on itself and the world seemed to go crazy. There was something in the quality of Armand's work in those formative years in particular, which was known at the time, uh, Armin was famous for these uh, year-end lists where he would, uh, what were they called, the better-than lists, Armin? I, I right, yes, the better-than list. That's the it. better-than list where he would take a widely, uh, say, a film that had received critical praise from the consensus of critics, and then he would hold up a, a film often a uh, more commercial film, but not always, sometimes a more obscure film. The The judgment wasn't about what's more obscure or more commercial, but he would hold up a film and say, this was better than that, essentially. Uh, I'll give an and example of one of the to... controversial ones. The yeah. kinetic art in the Transporter 3 was better than um, The Dark Knight, which was liked by impressionable right. teenagers, uh, for which you got a tremendous amount of hate. You were sad, you were crotchety, a peddler of Cold War platitudes, a hater of the common people, a Christian boy, a mindless typist, and, uh, you know, 
other. Well, apparently. Christian boy seems to get at it. And yeah, it was, I like it that was as the my, insult as as a as a Christian boy my, myself. Uh, <laughs> my intention in those years to try and figure out what the core of Armin's aesthetic was, or or what the core I shouldn't say of his aesthetic of his critical worldview. I was trying to to piece it together in those years. I knew that he was accused of being everything scurrilous from a contrarian to a Christian, but I felt that those were uh, those were petty ways of deflecting from what he was really trying to get after, which seemed to me a kind of a humanism beyond the calculating postures of secular rationalism, a, a religious humanism in art. And so all I'll say in conclusion was that what I learned from those years was to try and take art seriously. And I will try to do that today. That's my preamble. And it's a great pleasure to have you here, Armin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'll, I'll take I'll take all that you and Phil said already. Um, I was, tell I was, us why. Uh, tell us why you chose these two, if you will. Oh, Spielberg and Roxy Music. Yeah. Well. Uh, I guess it. I guess it's all part of my my practice as a as a pop culture writer. Uh, the two forms of pop culture that I respond to most immediately and and most often are movies and pop music. And Spielberg and Roxy Music, uh, the Brian Ferry, the British Brian Ferry Group, are are perfect representatives of the things that I value in cinema and in music. So I, I picked those two also because, you know, Roxy Music made an album in 1979 called Manifesto, and I thought that would nicely fit the title of, of your endeavor here. But I picked those two because those are artists I take seriously. Those are artists that, uh, in Brian Ferry's case, certainly represents a, a, a Christian attitude towards pop culture. And in Spielberg's case, as I say in Make Spielberg Great Again, an, an ecumenical approach to pop culture, uh, a Judeo-Christian approach to popular culture, and Spielberg being a one of the great, having once been one of the great pop filmmakers, understands that he has a wide audience to address, and so his Judeo-Christian values uh, are for everyone. That's the ecumenical part of his, of his art. Right. And so the two essays, the two chapters from Armin's book, which is... Uh, compiled from contemporaneous uh, reviews and essays he wrote about Spielberg. The preface that we're going to discuss is The Wailing Wall. And then there's uh, the 2013 piece, Steven Spielberg's Obama. And if I could take a crack at, at, at describing what these two have in common in the, in the, uh, the briefest way possible, essentially what you're arguing here is that the greatness of Spielberg was precisely the ecumenicism that Spielberg who had found something worth loving in the American experience wanted to convey that to as wide, uh, as large and as broad an audience as possible. And that that endeavor consisted in um, not only his 
technical and aesthetic choices, but also in a kind of, it involved a, a broad hearted spirit and one that was alive to wonder in a sense. I, you know, I don't know that there's a, you would pick up on a particular religious doctrine in Spielberg, but there was a sense of the sacred of uh, something beyond the immediate and the physical in many of his films. And then, and then that soured, you say, and it soured more or less with the arrival of Obama who provided for Spielberg, a both a kind of surrogate religious figure. And at the same time who turned Spielberg away from the, the beauty and wonder of the American experience uh, toward a more, a, a more, not not always openly cynical, but more deeply cynical, and more pandering, and more, in fact, uh, in some ways, perhaps even nihilistic approach. Is that a fair description? That is a fair description, and. Uh... <laughs> That's a fair, such a fair description. I have nothing to add to that except to uh, agree to it and to point out how the change in Spielberg that the book deals with uh, has to do with what you said before, uh, a, a move away from a sense of, uh, I'll, I'll, this time I'll just call it uh, American goodness, a move away from that to a kind of cynical approach to what America means uh, as a nation and as a culture. Uh, in the, uh, the pre-Obama Spielberg films, uh, his work is distinguished by that value that we also see in, 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 the, in several other great American filmmakers. And in the book, I, I connect him to D.W. Griffith and also John Ford. And, uh, I think there's a, there's a sense in which you could say that uh, D.W. Griffith, who's best known for The Birth of a Nation, but also his, but, but I want to add that his greatest film is the film he made after Birth of a Nation called Intolerance, uh, Love's Struggle Through the Ages. Uh, D.W. Griffith and John Ford, uh, best known for his, for his uh, magnificent Western films, were artists who understood and believed in the idea of the popular audience. Uh, that the American audience in particular, that they made movies for in particular, uh, was a, a wide audience of different types of people, but people who were united in their citizenship and united in their uh, core beliefs, core beliefs that also uh, we find in, the, in uh, the founding of the United States. And so they made movies for just that kind of audience. And Spielberg worked in that fashion at the start of his, of his career. And then uh, once Obama came along and changed culture and changed people's perceptions of what America be could be, what America was and what it could be, and that word change is part of that. Uh, that word change is uh, a dangerous and uh, and saddening term, of course, <laughs> in the way it's been approached. Uh, after Obama, uh, Spielberg changed, <laughs> and his uh, his filmmaking. Uh, his regard of the wide popular audience somehow shrunk. Uh, he's a Hollywood filmmaker, so he always works on a grand scale with a big budget, but the movies have stopped being popular. 
because people don't respond to them the way they to the later films the way they did to the early films. So you you put him in <laughs> in a legacy with 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 Griffith, right? And that imagined public that Griffith is 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 picturing, right, is not particularly capacious, right? Um, and well, so, well, <laughs> or at least, you know, I mean, this is a deeply racist filmmaker, right, for whom that's a part of the animating vision for one of his major works. And I wonder how you how you think about that search for a sort of broad-based popular audience when you have that particular legacy where there's there's that assumption of what America is is actually one that that decidedly erases people, right? Well, Phil, I don't know what you mean by deeply racist. Is that is that like deeply pregnant? <laughs> uh, I, I, so, I would say people can be more or less racist. Yeah. Well, let, well, let us let us start by disabusing everyone of the notion that Griffith was a deeply racist right. artist. Uh, I don't know what the deeply has to do with anything. Uh, it could be off to- topic for us to talk about everybody being mm-hmm. racist. So let's save that for another time. Uh, but uh, I want to disabuse you of the notion that many people have about Griffith, and it's a notion based on being unfamiliar with his work. Uh, when you look at a, a movie like Birth, The Birth of a Nation, you also, also have to take it in context of things like uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, you have to take it in terms of the times in which it was made. You have to understand who Griffith was as, a, as an American Southerner from Kentucky and the kinds of story he was telling about the Civil War that don't often get told. The Birth of a Nation is, in point of fact, in the narrative, uh, the creators of the Ku Klux Klan are heroized, but in the narrative, it's really a film about the rift between the North and the South, and uh, and it's a film about mainly white characters, but it's very perceptive about race. Uh, there there are scenes in Birth of a Nation that has to do with the uh, uh, that has to do with the with the U.S. Congress at that time that are almost. Uh, <laughs> interchangeable with scenes of the Congress under someone like John Lewis and Maxine Waters. So it's a complicated film. Let's not put a label on Griffith like that, primarily like such as Deeply Racist, because because of the film that he made right after Birth of a Nation, which was called Intolerance, Love's Struggle Through the Ages. The story is that Griffith made Intolerance because he felt he was completely misunderstood by those who felt that the Birth of a Nation was a racist work. It is not a racist work in the sense of a, a work that, since that attempts that seeks to demean black people. That's not the kind of film it is at all. Uh, there are white villains as well as black villains in *Birth of a Nation*. Uh, it's a more complicated film than it's been made out to be. But Griffith knew at the time that it was misunderstood, so he made *Intolerance*. Note the title to show the world that he understood what intolerance was. And the subtitle, Love's Struggle Through the Ages, is part of Griffith's effort to show that intolerance, bigotry, and racism is not limited to, uh, to the United States, to the, to, the, to the core of the Civil War, but that it existed 
in, uh, in the Babylonian era. It, exist, it existed during Christ's time. It existed in the 16th century during the Huguenot massacre in France. And it existed in modern day. Birth of a Nation tells those four stories. Those four different time periods are intermixed. It's a magnificent film. It's the, it's the kind of concept and narrative experiment that nobody, nobody, more than 100 years later, has matched. And the purpose of it is that Griffith wants to explain to people that uh, I'm not a racist. I understand what bigotry is. I'm against it. So let's get that out of the way and, and proceed to talk about Griffith in terms of being an American artist who respects the popular audience. One other thing, Phil, you, you suggested that perhaps Griffith's audience was not capacious. I would have to challenge that. Uh, when I first got interested, and this is how I'll challenge it, when I first became interested in movies and in film history, uh, I would pick up the history wherever I could. And I remember uh, reading in an almanac, <laughs> this would be in the late 60s, reading in an almanac, uh, the listing of the highest grossing films of all time. And the almanac stated that this list, uh, this listing is made, but it should be noted that uh, Birth of a Nation is not on the list because the records, the uh, book, book uh, box office records from that time are incomplete. But given the popularity, the, the wide popularity of Birth of a Nation in 1915, and, and its enormous popular success, and it was controversial too, it was controversial in part because it was popular, so many people saw it and responded to it, uh, that if the, if the box office take for Birth of a Nation in 1915 was adjusted for inflation, it would be the highest grossing film of all time. Uh, so I give you that bit of information just to, uh, to, to confirm the idea that Griffith did indeed approach a capacious audience a truly popular audience, and his example in the silent movie era of American filmmaking is the example that followed the, that, that that was followed by the filmmakers who came after him and who were, who were all inspired by him. Uh, Ford was inspired by him, Spielberg was inspired by him, inspired by him, among other filmmakers, and they their inspiration comes from the fact that they understand D.W. Griffith was not a deeply racist filmmaker. Well, so the, 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 the effect of well, well, the effect of the film was certainly um, influential to the rebirth of the clan, right? Yeah, um, I part think of it. That, sure. Yeah, uh, and it's not it's not shocking that that would be the case. I, you know, one of the things I, sometimes I'll get into fights with film critics uh, over the movie Full Metal Jacket <laughs> because. I'll note that it's probably the best recruiting commercial that the Marine Corps uh, never made. Every Marine loves that movie. And, you know, I'll be informed by very smart and sophisticated film critics that actually it's an anti-war movie. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I know that's what the theme is supposed to be. But the fact of the matter is it isn't. There's a reason that Arlie Ermey was, you know, made like an honorary, uh, given like an honorary <laughs> promotion by the Marine Corps or, or whatever it was. There's a reason that every young Marine knows that movie, quotes that movie. That movie is doing things to the audience that's not, that's not a matter of, you know, 
them not being as smart and sophisticated as the film critics who, you know, have seen the movie and know what the point is supposed to be rather that the audience is using art the way that art is meant to be used as a, as a, as a tool, right? As a tool for understanding themselves and their lives. And, and we'll bring this back to Spielberg, but, you know, Full Metal Jacket provides you a lot of tools in in ways that the filmmaker doesn't seem to have intended, right? And that film critics are often blind to. And part of it is they're just, I think, blind to <laughs> the range of things that can fascinate and compel us. Green, what is that button on your body armor? A peace symbol, sir. Where'd you get it? I don't remember, sir. What is that you've got written on your helmet? Born to kill, sir. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. If you're looking at a work, yeah, I mean, it, it, I suppose it's, uh, you know, good for Griffith that he, you know, had a later work where he tried to make it clear that, make statements against prejudice. But there's also the, the powerful impact of the work itself and, uh, and the, you know, the way that, that work has been taken up by people who you know, aren't, aren't responding to it ignorantly. They're responding to things that are in the work. So, and one of those things is a, a, a vision of American history, right? Which yes, privileges certain people in certain, certain stories and certain histories above others and renders others invisible. And I think that one of the things that, and, and I should be clear, I, I do like, your idea of this sort of attempt to reach out to a broader audience. And, and it does, it moves me when you speak about that in terms of Spielberg, but I want to address this right off the bat because that sort of, you know, what is that? I think perhaps a better way of putting it is some folks might disagree that any such truly ecumenical, unifying artistic vision can actually be put forward, that we are sort of a splintered, splintered people with different histories. Uh, well, different I, I think that's the yeah. whole point, though. That's right. what, uh, that's the, the idea is this rift that I'm describing, that I described initially, uh, you know, attributing that to Armand is uh, the turn, the Obama turn, <clears throat> that Armand is describing is away from the kind of ecumenical mythology. And I, I don't, um, I don't think we have to resolve that at the moment, but yeah. it's certainly look there, there's obviously, um, there is a, a whole other conversation to be had about, uh, Griffith and, and, uh, and the particular impacts of that film. But, if we step back from that for a second, I'm, I think, uh, Armand, when you talk about Spielberg being in the mold, in the Griffith mold, in the ecumenical sense, 
you're setting him against his contemporaries uh, in a way that deserves further elaboration that the, the audience would benefit from from hearing you explicate a bit. So if Spielberg is the ecumenical director uh, who gets some grief because that ecumenicism is taken as, uh, you know, crass commercialness or shallowness, etc. What is that competing with? What is the uh, what is the competing vision uh, among his contemporaries before the Obama turn, let's say? So like the, the Spielberg of his greatest pictures of the color purple of E.T., of Indiana Jones, you know, what is the alternative uh, aesthetic and vision of American life that other artists are producing? Well, it would have to be the strictly secular vision of life that Spielberg is working against and that, that his, that his movies oppose. Still, <laughs> we're going to get back to this, but I want to clear up some things about Griffith. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it so happens that yes, I mean, people use art for their own purposes all the time. So it so happens that people who believed in the Ku Klux Klan, Klan's members themselves, uh, even a president like Woodrow Wilson saw what they wanted to see in Birth of a Nation. But there are others who saw more, and those others would include John Ford and Spielberg. And my point about uh, into- bringing up intolerance is not that Griffith was simply making an apology or to those people who were offended by Birth of a Nation. He was always, he was actually being true to the films he made before Birth of a Nation and the films he made after Birth of a Nation. And this is what Spielberg and John Ford saw in him. They saw in Griffith's work, they saw a humanist approach to storytelling. They saw an artist who understood uh, what, what uh, the Birth of a Nation calls, calls Lincoln the great heart. Uh, Griffith understood the great heart in people. Uh, he looked for the common human values in all of his characters, and he tried, and he did, in fact, express that in movie after movie. This is what makes him great. This is why I defend him and argue against, argue on behalf of him against those who simply want to, uh, you know, uh, condemn him for the birth of a nation. If you look at the birth of a nation, anybody, you too, and anyone else, if you look at the birth of a nation, the story that you come away with is not a story about the Ku Klux Klan. What you come away with is a story about the rift between Northern and Southern Americans and how they, how for (laughs) the moment of the Civil War, they forgot what binded them together. They forgot their commonality and their commonality is, is, is the, their humanity. And Griffith is the great humanist filmmaker in American history. Uh, not just an innovator of, of genius technique, because that's also what Spielberg and John Ford took from him, but Spielberg and John Ford also took from Griffith an understanding of our common humanity that were in, expressed in all those films, Orphans of the Storm, Way Down East, uh, uh, The Avenging Conscience, so, so many of Griffith's films. This is this humane legacy uh, respects Judeo-Christian values, uh, the values of the founding fathers, even 
Uh, it was it, it's something that was continued in John Ford's films, continued in Spielberg's films. By the time we get to Spielberg in the 1970s, uh, American culture has become much more cynical and even much more secular. Uh, I think I think one could also make the argument that a lot of the uh, pushback that Spielberg received in the early part of his career is that his belief in common humanity, uh, those, the ecumenicism of his work, is what made uh, secular reviewers think him square, corny, and uh, just commercially craven when he wasn't. It's just that those values of Spielberg's films, the ecumenical values of Spielberg's films, is not what some people wanted to take from, from movies at all. They wanted to dismiss it and he's always been, he always worked against that in the early parts of his career. Could, could you maybe tell a story about seeing uh, Close Encounters of the, um, of the Third Kind uh, for us, just, or, or any other film that you think might, might give a, um, sort of give a better account of, of what you mean when you're talking about that spirit, the thing that you're seeing in his work? Okay, well, okay, we could also start with his first, uh, his first uh, theatrical feature, which is uh, the Sugarland Express. Uh, Sugarland Express is a Lovers on the Lamb movie, criminal Lovers of the Lamb on the Lamb movie. Welfare's come and taken Baby Langston forever. They're gonna keep him in that foster home. I don't want my baby back. Now you gonna help me or not? Well, where's he now? Oh, in the in the same tradition as as uh, late sixties and seventies films like Bonnie and Clyde, Thieves Like Us, Badlands, uh, those criminal couples on the run, lovers on the run movies. But uh, Sugarland Express differs from them in that it is at heart it's a kind of love story about two young Americans who go wrong. A, a couple played by. Uh, William Atherton and Goldie Hawn, who are trying to who rescue their baby from, from an adoption. And uh, because uh, Goldie Hawn's character breaks her husband out of jail, uh, they're hunted down by the police, and they go through a long road chase on the way trying to find their baby at the adoption home. And uh, right away in Spielberg's first feature film, uh, he presents us with with American characters who we can identify with at their most basic, loving, and humane aspect. Uh, he's announcing immediately that he is a, a, a pop filmmaker, a filmmaker who believes in Americans in, as, as, a, as a people with, with a great heart, as to use Griffith's term. Uh, it starts there with the Sugarland Express. And uh, you can even see it in Jaws, as I say in the book, Jaws is, is a Spielberg film that I don't I don't completely respond to. Uh, but then it, the humanism comes back more fully in the film he makes after Jaws, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind is about Americans, primarily Americans, who, uh, who are seeking a vision. And the vi they seek that vision in the mystery of UFOs as with in the mystery of seeing something in the sky that they can't quite account for. And this vision is something that unites all the characters in Close Encounters. Uh, it's a sci-fi movie. It's also in its way a road movie like the Sugarland Express, but it's mainly a movie about people seeking a vision. 
And that's what makes it his first truly great film. Because uh, he's got a great theme and, and he rises to the occasion of that great film with or that great theme with uh, really extraordinary images and uh, an insight into character. Uh, I'm going to assume that you guys have seen it because yes. everybody should have seen it. But uh, like Griffith, Spielberg is not afraid of, of human psychological complication. In that sense, like Griffith, he can make a movie with a character such as uh, Richard, Richard uh, Dreyfuss' Roy Neary, a character who briefly goes crazy. It's not a common thing in Hollywood uh, to heroize a character who goes crazy. Usually in Hollywood movies, uh, if characters go crazy, uh, they immediately need a psychiatrist, not a priest or, or a pastor or a rabbi. They need a psychiatrist to set them straight or else they're doomed. In Spielberg's case, uh, the protagonist who goes crazy, all he needs is confirmation of what he's seeking. All he needs is the great vision. And the great vision arrives at the end of the film. And when it arrives at the end of the film, only someone who is, who is ignorant of, uh, of, of Judeo-Christian literature and uh, can, can miss what Spielberg is saying with that great arrival. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, that great arrival is also a reference to the very ending of Into Griffith's Intolerance. There was also a great arrival at the end of Intolerance that people don't usually talk about because uh, it, it, it upsets their easy, their, their, their simple ideas about Griffith. But there's a great arrival in Intolerance that ends Intolerance as there is in Close Encounters. And Close Encounters for me is the film, well, that's the film that convinced me that Steven Spielberg wasn't just a good filmmaker, but a great one. And all of this makes Spielberg uh, much beloved by moviegoers, American moviegoers, moviegoers all over the world, but it alienates most critics. I think it'd be fair to say Armin's the exception here. Many critics see in Spielberg's kind of uh, the wide-eyed filmmaking, the ecumenicism, the there's a kind of um, naivete in the experience, not in the, not in the directorial technique that is very much out of step with um, what's supposed to be sophisticated and what's supposed to represent um, artistic depth, which is, um, you know, more in the modernist tradition, less in the, ecumenical tradition let's, let's keep so with even, even well let me just let me bring this back to malik yeah. for a second because it's interesting with malik though malik is also a religious filmmaker there's a way in which it, even in a movie like badlands which uh you know is a, a kind of contemporary uh film during uh spielberg's early years and in malik's later work there's a, a kind of, uh, you know, a, an estrangement in some of those pictures. And certainly in Badland, there's the explicitly kind of noir aesthetic, but there's, it's not wide-eyed in the way that Spielberg is. And so even where it feels religious, I think that there's somehow something more palatable for the critical eye about Malick because it can be placed in a, a kind of exotic category mm. 
you know, Spielberg just seems to be the most um, uncritic friendly. And I, I should go back and see who was saying what at the time. I'm sure some of his pictures got better receptions than others. But if you're applying the kind of contemporary sensibility, what is art supposed to do? The ethical and social responsibilities of art and also the hallmarks of sophistication in art. It's uh, it's hard to imagine anybody who fails more more of those tests than Spielberg in his early work. In particular, despite the fact that he's never explicitly religious, he's just in love with America and attuned to something larger than the purely secular materialist experience, even if that's just the myth of America. I mean, it seems to me, um, and I, I don't know if you would you would disagree with this, Armand, but it seems to me that for Spielberg, these are almost interchangeable, right? Like the, the myth, uh, American exceptionalism american exceptionalism in the god-given ecumenical variety is the religion it doesn't uh spielberg is you know jewish but as far as i know never particularly observant there's a famous story about him only discovering the reality of the holocaust as an adult because uh and this is what led him to make schindler's list because he he grew up in this kind of california post-war wonderland well uh i would i would say that the the uh the reviewers or whoever who uh always question or question spielberg's earlier films uh you brought up malik in batlands i would say that the reason is be is because of the difference between the Sugarland Express and Batland, uh, both Lovers on the Lamb movies, both movies having to do with lawbreakers on the road, uh, but one movie is uh, nihilistic, and the other is wide-eyed and uh, hopeful. And uh, there, there is, there is a truth. There is a truth about uh, people's responses to art. Uh, that when they are, all of us, I think, when we're young, uh, we tend to like cynicism. And we tend to think that cynicism is, 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 is like, like Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye. Uh, cynicism is, is the great truth-telling, and that's what art is at its best. Uh, not always. And so I think, the, I think there's a kind of uh, truly naive, uh, childish attitude towards movies that cynical movies are better movies, the smarter movies, the movies that know the way the world works. And for that reason, Spielberg is square, if not simply craven. And I think he's, his early films have always been up against that, that childish, what I call, I'll call childish, juvenile, or even sophomoric attitude, that cynicism and nihilism is smart uh, and, and preferred. But so Spielberg's always been against that because his his the attitude of his films is not cynical or nihilistic ever, and uh, that doesn't go down well with people who who think cynicism nihilism makes them smart or superior. Well, it's it's the seeing through, right? Like you note in in Close Encounters, you know the guy goes crazy, but he doesn't need a psychiatrist, right? He doesn't need to have, um, you know, the 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 sort of the roots of his madness exposed to him and, and dissected what he needs is, is an encounter, right. With, 
with something else. There's you, you, you write in your book that Spielberg uh, had a unique personal expressiveness, a movie love that could uniquely bl blend contradictory emotions, humor and fear, tragedy and hope into unabashed profundity, spiritual revelation, agape. Uh, and yet his technique was often mistaken for mere technique. And there's, there's that, you know, instead of dissecting, motioning towards some sort of greater thing, greater whole. And then there's, there's the humanism. You know, you, you mentioned Jaws uh, as not having it as much as maybe some of the other films. But, you know, one of the scenes that I really love from Jaws is there's a scene where the father is worried and he's, and he's thinking and his son is seeing the father being worried and is mimicking his gestures and eventually the father notices that he's being that he's being mimicked and it breaks the mood of of worry and fear that has descended over the house and there's a kind of um wordless communion <laughs> between father and son that happens and just it's a very small moment but it's just it's it's beautifully done. It's beautifully evoked, and um, I don't know. It, it it strikes me as one of those moments of that kind of particular warmth and interest in in human beings uh, that that you seem to like. Well, sure. That well, that's a very nice observation that you bring up, and I think it's one of it's, I take that also to be one thing, one example of why Spielberg is. Is sometimes a misunderstood filmmaker, uh, because uh, a moment such as the one you described is not a moment that you normally see in uh, what shall we call Jaws, a a horror film mm. or a scare movie. Uh, you don't usually get get that kind of sensitivity out of that genre, and but but it's there in Jaws, which is not my favorite Spielberg film, but it's there in Jaws because Spielberg is a more complicated artist. He's more complicated than just a more complex than just a genre filmmaker. Though he, of course, has genre expertise, but he brings much more to storytelling than simply uh, uh, pushing the buttons. Okay, so I think we've we've sort of given a sense of you know what it is you like. I mean, he also he also is good at just kind of creating iconic characters um you know yeah i think the iconography and the ecumenicism go together he's not afraid of being broad or rendering things in ways that don't always uh privilege uh you know kind of um showy versions of uh, uh nuance is the wrong word but uh the kind of splintering you described before phil of the the kind of um sense of the the individual subjectivity always being privileged so he ends up with these incredible iconic images that are, and spielberg is not my not my favorite uh filmmaker but i would say that he's one of the filmmakers who's created some of the most lasting film images for me i mean everything from um you know, the boulder in Indiana Jones right. uh, 
to I, I, I assume most people immediately recall uh, the Normandy landing in uh, Saving Private Ryan, but yeah. the the scenes and there were other scenes in Saving Private Ryan that stuck out to me, particularly um, the final battle scene where um, Tom Hanks is uh, wounded and holding his pistol is um, always really stuck with me. Um, but that there's a turn that occurs for Spielberg and it doesn't, it sounds like, uh, Wait, from, can, can, but before we get to the turn, can I, I, I there's a question that I want to ask because it's something Yeah, I'm not super sophisticated on film, but it's something that I've wondered about. So there's, there, there are filmmakers who create iconic characters or movies that are beloved that have a real cultural impact. And like, like you wouldn't say that, um, Rocky Four is a great movie. It's an unbelievable sight to see. We don't move upon the edge. They're toe to toe. The Russian towers above the American. It's a true case of David and Goliath here. It's unbelievable the the, the condition of those men. I must break you. But I probably know. You know, I know like half the dialogue of that film, right? Um, you know, Sylvester Stallone has created, you know, Rambo and and Rocky, who are two iconic characters. And like, how do you? And I, I and I, you know, that that can't just be. I don't think that's just a a um, uh, just luck. Uh, you know, w- when you're judging the quality of the film, what kind of weight do you give to? whatever it is that, that, that sort of makes something iconic, even if, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say that, um, you know, Rocky four is, is, uh, citizen Kane. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is one of the movies that just people absolutely love and they love it for a reason, you know, that he's doing something, he's doing something well in that movie, even if it's not, um, high art. I mean, how do you judge that when you're sort of thinking about film? Well, listen, I'm going to say there's an elephant in the room, so we, we need to address it. And in dealing with uh, popular art, the most important thing of all is emotion. And in my view, people are these days are afraid of emotion. Uh, this, I think this is really the heart of why Spielberg is considered corny, mm. craven, uh, square, uh, because he is above all, <laughs> here I go again, like Griffith, <laughs> he, deals, he deals in emotion. He deals in powerful emotion. And I think uh, people are scared by powerful emotion. Uh, I could have said also The Elephant in the Room is a movie that we didn't touch on, and that's E.T., uh, the single most popular film of Spielberg's career, uh, the film that touched just about everyone around the world. And he is tuned in to emotion. He's able to affect emotion, not simply through manipulation, I say, but by recognizing what it is that people have in common. And he's able to delineate, to dramatize what it is that people have in common. Often in his films, uh, it's it's the 
quintessential feelings and needs that go back to childhood. And because so many of his films have moments of, uh, of supreme recognition of childhood experience, uh, stupid reviewers like to say that that means that Spielberg himself is childish and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but he, he understands quintessential human emotion and he's able to, to express that in his movies, which is why he is the most popular filmmaker of all our lifetimes. Uh, people like action, people like humor, people like sex, but it's the emotion in Spielberg's films that grab people. It's the emotions, it's the emotions of E.T. that make it such, such a cultural turning point. If that's, that's, there's a turning point or is it simply one of the high points of, of American popular culture? E.T. Uh, that's the film. That's really the film that, that defines Spielberg's popularity. It's also the film that, that best expresses his artistry and the things that he is interested in. Emotion. Uh, emotion is why people like Rocky. Although the, emo the emotional uh, effects of Rocky, I, 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 I contend, are, are much more simplistic, simplistic and don't go as deep as E.T. and other Spielberg films. But that's why people like Rocky. They don't like Rocky because it's, a, it's an example of great filmmaking. None of the Rocky films are examples of great filmmaking. But the Rocky films grab people. Uh, the Rocky films, uh, they, they touch something that's important to people whether it be the, their, their own spiritual identity rather than uh, ethnic or social identity, or, whether, or even the way Rocky expresses everyone's need to accomplish something, people's need to be loved. Uh, those, th those simple things, those simple basic things are in the Rocky movies, but they're the things that Spielberg always deals with, is always able to, to touch and express and clarify. And it's the, it's the clarity of those emotions uh, that makes his movies so good. It's the clarity of those emotions that I think that, that sometimes that might embarrass some people. When you see the separation of the two sisters in the color purple, uh, that moment of, of separation comes right out of Griffith's Orphans of the Storms, Storm, and it's, it's so powerful, it's, it's, it's kind of shattering. And people are not always accustomed to having that kind of experience at the movies. You don't get shattered by any of the Rocky films, you may be touched by them, moved by them, or roused by them, but, you're ne but you never feel shattered by them. And Spielberg can go that deep. And that's why his, his early films are so popular, because he does go that deeply in, into emotion and into storytelling. And uh, that's what makes him exceptional. Uh, that's, that, is, that is his direct line to Griffith. And it's a direct line that uh, I don't know who he, who he has passed that on to. Perhaps not anyone or anyone I've identified as yet. It's not, it's, it's not obvious that he's passed it on to anyone, right? I mean, I can't think of anybody who's even trying to do that at the moment. There's certainly nobody who comes to mind in an immediately recognizable way who seems interested in that mantle. Sure. So, so that's 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 what makes him special. Uh, and I, I also contend that 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 stuff comes from his from his. It's, he, he expresses it in an ecumenical way, but I think it also comes from his, his Jewishness and, and the way he's able to respect uh, those important feelings, those things that identify us as as spirits and as souls. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, when you watch, me, when you watch yeah. Close Encounters, I mean, I mean, 
there's no mistaking what it all means. He just isn't being explicit about it. But visually, he's he's explicit about it. If, if you if you don't get it in close encounters, you're only you're blind. But it's there. It's a very yeah. American Jewishness. It's a very California American Jewishness, and I, I don't sure. mean that in a dismissive way. But um, you know, it's much more alive to the kind of cosmic universalism of a post-war uh, Jewish family in California than to. Uh, Dibbicks, let's say, and and other uh, signs of, um, you know, not just darkness or or the animalistic spirit, but of uh, a less historically promising vista. Uh, but it seems to me that that is his that the the Americanness and the religiousness for him are part of the same thing. And look, the other elephant in the room is that all of this in a much broader sense, not limited just to popular film or to Spielberg, but in the context of virtually every social and creative arena of the last hundred or so years, art, politics, social intercourse, this kind of uh, broad emotionality, this kind of innocence was taken as evidence that somebody was a dupe, because if you understood things, if you understood the way the world worked, um, then you knew that you you knew that ideas like um, a transcendent horizon or a unifying national myth were were just uh, you know props being used by powerful people to pursue their own ends or being used by ultimately um, cynical people to satisfy their selfish desires, whatever the case may be. But it was not just limited to uh, popular art, but in a much broader sense, the Spielberg ethos was, you know, once a a very kind of uh, popular and I think powerful force in American life. But, was on the wane long before Spielberg himself um, appeared. And and he might have been the last gasp of it, in a sense. He might have been the last popular gasp of it. And then it turns into something else. And here I, I do want to get to the Obama turn you describe, Armin, because you essentially are saying that in his veneration of this secular figure, right, in treating Obama uh, as a kind of, you know, to make it explicit, as Armin uh, writes in his chapter, Obama is the, the Lincoln film that Spielberg makes is a kind of historical deification of Obama. Obama is Lincoln. It's never especially subtle. And then Spielberg makes this follow up short film, which is supposed to be sort of uh, poking fun at this but ends up being um, fairly gross because it's engaging in this kind of hero worship of, uh, you know, a a state leader, a party figure. Um, And Spielberg both is never able to recover from that as an artist, and nor is he ever able to recover his audience after that is the argument you're making. And I wonder, you know, why do you? Th- why did he fall for Obama? If Obama, in your telling, Armin, is a kind of cynical figure, and Spielberg is so 
broad hearted and big hearted, then why does he attempt to, to, is he just taken in by it? Why does that happen? Or is it because ultimately his religiosity is not that deeply religious and was, uh, maybe almost like an accident of that historical moment. What do you think? <laughs> well, you, you, you asked the $64 million question. Why was anybody taken in by Obama? Uh, but, uh... Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to device. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well... I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans blue states for Democrats, but I've got news for them too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and there are patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes all of us defending the United States of America. I guess I, I, I can only hazard the guess that uh, in some sense, Obama represented people's hopes. And, and then of course he, he shortchanged them. But those hopes as, as you, as you suggested just now about Spielberg's uh, religiosity, religious feeling, uh, maybe those hopes were, the hopes that people had were shallow to begin with, uh, hopes without principle, uh, superficial hopes. And uh, Spielberg is not the only one who was conned by Obama. So other, other than, uh, than that superficial hope, I can't explain why. Uh, I, I try to not get hung up on explaining why in the book, and just step back to notice the effects that that uh, that veneration of Obama had on Spielberg as an artist. Uh, how that how perhaps superficial hope in a in a in a pretend black figure somehow moved Spielberg away from understanding what all people have in common, regardless of race or religion. But it did move him away from it. And his films after after his encounter with Obama, a too close encounter, uh, became more cynical, more nihilistic, more obvious. Uh, oddly enough, his his, his technique is, is not really lessened. He he is blessed with, with with magnificent technique. He still has technique as a filmmaker, but it's being put to uh, to lesser purposes now uh, at this at this point in his career. Thought, yeah, I just quickly, I thought Munich was maybe like uh, one of the most, in terms of technique, I thought there was a lot wrong with Munich, but I as a thriller, yeah. the pacing of Munich, I don't think I've ever seen a 
a movie with better pacing than Munich. There's nothing wrong with Munich. <laughs> well, we can get into that. I think there's I a like, lot wrong I like with Munich. Munich yeah. but... Nothing wrong with Munich, but uh, you know they came out the same year as as War of the Worlds, and and you know depends on when you ask me uh, uh, which one I'll say is the superior movie. But his technique in both of those films is is. <laughs> Is flawless and and uh, and awesome, frankly. Uh, he 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 knows how to make images work. Uh, it's not just a matter of pacing; it's a matter of knowing what to show, and it's a matter of understanding the intensity of of, of what he's showing that that distinguishes him from other filmmakers. And uh, he just doesn't have after after Obama. He doesn't respond to he doesn't respond to uh, the stories he picks the way he used to. Uh, let's, let's also not forget, uh, that prior to, to, uh, the disastrous encounter with Obama, uh, Spielberg had to deal with 9-11 and both Munich and War of the Worlds are responses to 9-11. Uh, they're sophisticated responses to 9-11. One might argue with the politics in Munich, uh, but certainly when, when response, when the response to 9-11 is distilled the way it is in War of the Worlds, there is no argument. Uh, that, that, that has to be recognized as, as a great vision of disaster, a great division, vision of, of dashed hopes, but still hope at the end. Uh, and he responded to 9-11 after having been shaken by 9-11, as, as I think most Americans were. Uh, he responds to it better than any other filmmaker in those two movies. And uh, maybe, perhaps, I, I don't say this in the book, but perhaps, uh, hopefully it's implicit in the book, that, that that is those two films arriving in the same year are, are the peaks of Spielberg's career. Uh, after that, uh, is there much more to say? Uh, he's expressed his sense of being an American in War of the Worlds. He's expressed his sense as a Jew, sense of being a Jew in Munich. And, and he does so, does both identities, uh, his Jewish identity, his American identity, are, are dealt with uh, in great detail and with, with, with a, 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 a genuine and impressive depth of feeling in both of those films. Uh, those films are, are certainly the peaks of his career. Uh, so after that, after that, what do you do? Maybe you look for fresh, <laughs> for fresh inspiration or, or, uh, or uh, recreation. But unfortunately, what came after 9-11 was Obama. And so he was, he, we, can say, we can say that Spielberg, like America, was in a point of, at a state of weakness. And in that weak condition, uh, fell for a con. And that con has uh, changed the way he was able to operate as an artist. So can you explain why you think Obama was a con? Pardon me? What do you mean when you say that Obama was a con? Well, and, uh, let's see. Let's say let's use, use general media terms who always call him a black man. He's not a black man. You know, there's, there's a term in the culture that, was, that, was, that used to be common in the culture before Obama was elected president, and that term was uh, biracial. People stopped using biracial once Obama became a president. Odd. Nothing wrong with being biracial. A lot of us are quad racial. Nothing wrong with stating that. 
Uh, that's certainly not how that's not how we value human beings. But but the recognition, the the need to recognize someone's race primarily is a problem. But then to recognize that race uh, inaccurately is a is a bigger problem. So it seems like a con job to me, actually. Uh, because it, and what is a con? Con is a is a is a, is a game of persuasion, uh, not dealing honestly or truthfully with things, but uh, making people believe something that's not so. You can't trust a con. And if you can't, tr- and it, but if you do trust a con, then you're you're you are coming then from a from a place of insecurity, and or, I'm sorry, not insecurity. You're coming from a place of instability, and perhaps perhaps that is the. Uh, the thing that changed Spielberg's filmmaking after 9-11, uh, his, perhaps his approach to the world became destabilized. So, and he, go, go ahead. So the con is about Obama's racial identity and, and what, what sort of Americans thought that promised. I'm sorry, say that again. So for you, the con centers around Obama's racial identity. Okay, start there, yes. And then sort of people responded to that. Um, and there was a kind of romance around it, right? Right. And so, so is, that, is, that the, is that the crux of the con for you? Well, that's where the con began. <laughs> then, then following that, uh, became a, a, it changed people's approach to each other. Uh, it changed the way people began to, to react to each other, uh, to think about each other. Uh, where, where, after Obama, where was American unity? Uh, that was destroyed. Uh, Americans became suspicious of each other uh, in ways that they had not been before, in, in ways that they, if they had been before, they had gotten over it or had begun to get over it, began to get over it after the civil rights movement. And uh, after the civil rights movement in the country began to progress socially. But then we, we went right back to a kind of division uh, with with the with the advent of Obama, and you think, and you, and you lay that on Obama. Sure, sure. Obama, Obama is is the second great disastrous event of the twentieth twenty first century for Americans. After nine, there was nine eleven, and then there's Obama. See, here's here's you had me until there, Armand, but here's where I disagree with this. I think right. uh, I, I'm basically with you on the ways in which the Obama presidency was a con insofar as it promised white liberals both a kind of perfection of Americanness and a dismantling of Americanness at the same time. And so it could, part of the reason I think why it took in somebody like Spielberg, who you might think of as too big hearted to go for this, is that the big heartedness was in fact part of the Obama appeal, right? The great healer and the, the kind of uniter and all that. And it only became clear, I think, deeper into the Obama presidency that this uh, like uniting of the nation was was not the animating vision of his presidency at all. Not that I think uh, people in the administration would have described it as divisiveness. I think they would have described it in precisely the terms they're using now, terms like equity. Um, So I'm with you on that. But my problem with this line is that the great disaster is not 9-11, which is a tragedy, not a disaster. The great disaster is the response to 9-11. And I think you let uh, I think you let George W. Bush off the hook, perhaps because 
you respond to the ways in which he was, uh, as you see it, maligned by the kind of elite establishment, which is no, you know, no doubt true on some level, but is no excuse for orchestrating the the growth of the surveillance state and the his own dismantling of civil liberties and uh, the growth of the administrative state at the same time. You know, it's I, I don't think you can pick these guys apart. It's Obama doesn't arrive out of the blue. There's already a kind of uh, a, a, there's the we're reeling from 9-11, let's say. And then we pick precisely the wrong course. And then we keep doubling down on the wrong course. And then Obama doubles down on the wrong course. And we keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this until uh, until we we seem to ping pong back and forth between these figures, you know, Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. And um, and now, you know, now we have what the, the Biden administration is touting is this, you know, government wide whole of government racial equity effort that they feel um, they feel qualified to undertake while, you know, there's a baby formula shortage in the country and and much more basic um, kind of first order needs are not being attended to. So anyway, that's, but I, but I, that's my, that's where I dissent from what I take to be um, your historical argument, but I don't, I certainly don't have a hard time understanding what you mean by Khan in these terms. Um, You know? Yeah. Well, listen, uh, you know, uh, I will consider what you just said. I do consider what you just said. And, and perhaps I could have chosen a better word than disaster. Tragedy, certainly 9-11 was a tragedy. Um, uh, amend the statement I said, take out, exchange the word tragedy for disaster for tragedy. Yes, it was a tragedy. And so just as you said, after the tragedy, we're reeling. And so after the tragedy, what do we do? Except we, that response, uh, a, a, a questionable and, and uh, unfortunate response uh, was repeated was repeated within, in subsequent election after Bush. Uh, but to get back to the topic, though, uh, Spielberg never responded to Bush. Uh, he certainly, his filmmaking is a response, his filmmaking after Munich and War of the Worlds uh, is a response to Obama. Uh, we might even say that the, the films between uh, his Obama period, between his 9-11 period and Obama period, is that, that brief instance where he did... Uh, War Horse, and uh, The Adventures of Tintin. Uh, we could say that those two films are his attempts to try to regain his footing, regain some kind of artistic stability in response to a changed world and an America that it seems to be on the road to more and more mistakes. Uh, those two films might in some way uh, show evidence of, of, of that, of that reeling. They're still interesting films, though. Uh, he, he's still experimenting aesthetically in those films. Mm-hmm. Uh, War Horse, War Horse is, is a direct response to John Ford's What Price Glory, his World War I movie, which is, which is an appropriate response perhaps to what went on with the, uh, with the American uh, foreign policy in the Middle East after 9-11. And, uh, and The Adventures of Tintin is, is simply a reconsideration of, of cinema aesthetics. And, and, and really marvelous as that. 
the ultimate 3D movie, I, I would say. So then after that, after that, his films start to express a response to Obama. I repeat, he does not respond in his films to Bush. That's just not in his work. Uh, and that says enough about his politics that he doesn't respond to Bush. Uh, he's above it. But he's not above Obama. Uh, he's, he's captivated <coughs> and he can't, it can't help expressing it in the movies that he makes. And those are lesser films. Uh, those are not great films. Other than so, Lincoln, what is the kind of emblematic Obama-era Spielberg film? Well, all of them, really. But, but wow. When you look at the BFG, and which, which is practically a, an artist's rendering of Obama as an alien figure, uh, alien in the Spielberg sense, the good alien, uh, that, would be the, that would be the one, uh, the ultimate one. Yeah. I would say. Uh, which, which, you know, uh, to be a little hard, uh, it's nothing but a child, a childish, a childlike fantasy, a childlike fantasy that imagines this beneficent but human figure uh, as 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 some kind of a savior. Yeah, I can't help but think. I mean, stop me if I'm being too cynical here, but part of this, it seems to me, is that what you're isolating in Spielberg is a larger social disenchantment and um, what Spielberg responds to Obama, maybe that he doesn't respond to in Bush is that Obama is larger than life in a way that Bush is trying to be, Bush is trying to live up to the historical moment and fails abjectly in my opinion. Um, but is not, does not have any kind of mythic resonance. And Obama, whether you think it's shallow and misleading or not, has a kind of, there's an iconography of Obama that's seductive. And, um, and that iconography is, uh, is at one in the same time, both sort of quasi-religious in its own way and the ultimate disenchantment in another sense. Obama's larger than life to who? Well, to Spielberg, <laughs> clearly. I mean, to start, I, isn't that isn't that how we got here? That Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. I just, I, I just have to. Whoa, tease but about come that. on, come on. That's like the reverse of Kale saying nobody she knows voted for Nixon. I mean, Obama's larger than life to who? To a whole class of people for whom you know. But particular, uh, okay, but particular people, not to everyone. No, no, of course not yeah, to everybody. Okay, okay, I just, I just, I just want to put in here that uh, some people regarded him, Obama, with some skepticism, uh, with some distance, distance, emotional distance, and that's that is obviously missing in the Spielberg Obama films. There is, there is no distance. There's no skepticism. There's no questioning. There's simply a, a kind of deification, and. Uh, I don't like to use the term, but those films are not as smart as the earlier Spielberg films. Do, do, do you want to lay out your, your objection to Lincoln? Because, you know, you talk about there's a sort of digital, uh, there's a sort of short film that that he did, which lays out very clearly the the sort of linkage between his Lincoln film and and Obama. And of course, the the Lincoln film was interpreted in terms of the contemporary political debates, right? Um, and seemed sort of designed to, to, to be so. So what is your, 
what is your objection to Lincoln? What, what is it that, that made you dislike it so much? I mean, I, I, I remember enjoying it when I saw it, um, but. Well, <clears throat> the historical personage of Abraham Lincoln is of course a figure to respect. I like the way that Spielberg portrayed Lincoln in Minority Report. Uh, if you remember, uh, the, the action gets going in Minority Report uh, when a school kid has to do a report on the Gettysburg Address. And he takes a, a photograph of Abraham Lincoln and begins to cut it out into a silhouette. And as part of cutting out the, as a silhouette, uh, he has to take a pair of scissors and puncture the eyes of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, the, the metaphorical possibilities in, in that image are, are just so rich and wonderful. Uh, but, but, but still, there, there, is a, there is a moral basis to invoking the Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address that has to do with the story about, about law and government in, in uh, Minority Report. <clears throat> By the time he portrayed, Spielberg portrays Lincoln in Lincoln, uh, it's through the lens, or rather, it's 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 through the the uh, wonderment that he seems to feel about Obama. So he portrays Lincoln as Obama, not Abraham Lincoln as a figure who who had enormous impact on how Americans saw themselves, how Americans thought about war, how Americans thought about justice, uh, how but specifically how Americans thought about politics. So what you have in Lincoln then is the deification of a figure who, of a political figure whose politics are all based in chicanery, in trickery. And uh, this is not in itself a very interesting drama, not for me, not unless you're a filmmaker like Costa Gavras or Jean-Luc Godard, uh, to... Uh, to heroize Lincoln as a manipulator, as a political manipulator, uh, kind of goes against the myth of Lincoln. It goes against the idea of what America stands for. Uh, how does Spielberg come to that? That's, that's dismaying to me. It's a little puzzling to me, and then I am dismayed. And then, uh, but it doesn't make for good drama, frankly. And then, then there's an aesthetic problem in Lincoln as a piece of filmmaking. It's dark. And it's not dark in the film noir sense that uh, that Spielberg is is wondering is, is feeling anxiety and wondering about the future of America. Uh, one would think that the arrival of Lincoln during the Civil War would be a cause for celebration, or at least a a, a cause for hope in America's future. But instead, Lincoln is visually dark, not just dark; it's gloomy looking. I think there is a mismatch between subject and style in Lincoln. And it's simply, I think for that reason alone, it simply doesn't work. What do you think that work. darkness is meant to convey though? That's supposed to be gravitas, the somberness or the, you know, the weight of the historical moment. What, what's the mismatch? I think, I, I think not. I think not. And I think not because in, in another Spielberg high point, uh, it might, and this might be the film I write about most in the book, is Amistad. And in Amistad, uh, the way Washington, D.C. is portrayed in Amistad, it is that, uh, it is that gleaming, Washington, D.C. is that gleaming city on the hill. 
because at that point in Spielberg's mind, uh, the way America resolved the issue of slavery was a beautiful thing. And he felt it and expressed it visually in Amistad, in his depiction of Washington, D.C. and Amistad. That's, you have an opposite depiction of Washington, D.C. in Lincoln. And perhaps, perhaps what that is is not gravitas so much as confusion. Uh, Obama has confused him. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps the good part of Spielberg understands that a, man, that a political manipulator is not a really a good thing, even though I'm saying it's a good thing through, through, through this uh, Lincoln biopic. Maybe he really feels it isn't because, because my, my favorite D.H. Lawrence quote, trust the tale, not the teller. So the teller, Spielberg the teller, is saying that Obama is Lincoln and ain't he smart, but the tale itself says, uh, I'm depressed. This is gloomy. Uh, something's wrong. Yeah. Listen, I think we, we should move on here, and I'm sorry to have to do it because I could talk about this for um, many hours. And, you know, frankly, Armin, we might need to have you on again if you'll submit to it because I have a whole list of questions I want to ask you about um, stuff going all the way back to first of the month, which is um, the magazine Armand used to write for. Um, but I think we should talk about the Roxy music record now, mm-hmm. which is Manifesto. And um, this was recorded in 1979, <coughs> I believe. Yes. And it's uh, so this is Roxy music is um, just Brian Ferry at this point. Right. There's no Brian Eno involved in this. No, no, no. Uh, It's a Roxy music album. Right. Uh, A little history on Roxy music, please. uh, Which is appropriate because this is, in fact, the 50th anniversary of Roxy music. Uh, The first Roxy music album came out in 1972. Uh, it's, it, it belongs to the genre of British pop music called art rock. But the thing is, uh, Roxy Music was a, a group of musicians headed by a, a young art student from Newcastle, I believe, named Brian Ferry. And Brian Ferry had, had, had remarkably sophisticated ideas about music and art. And so when he made, when he came up with his uh, art rock group, uh, he wasn't doing uh, uh, quasi-symphonic things like, such as, say, uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And he certainly wasn't doing uh, strictly blues-based things like Led Zeppelin. And he's, but he was kind of playing around with all the ideas of pop culture, about pop culture that he had ingested as a pop-loving teenager uh, from, 60, from, sorry, from 50s rock and roll to the present uh, meaning from groups like the Drifters to figures like David Bowie. And uh, as, as uh, critic Graal Marcus said, uh, Brian Ferry, he, Marcus said that he felt that Brian Ferry outclassed David Bowie. Uh, there's no need to uh, contrast the two or put them in a battle with the two because uh, in the 70s England, both Bowie and Roxy Music were revered figures, uh, understandably. So Roxy Music is an art rock group, uh, Brian Ferry leading a, a group of, of extremely talented musicians, one of whom was Brian Eno. 
Brian Eno left the group after a couple of albums. And by the time of the, the third Roxy Music album, he was no longer in the group. But Brian Ferry and his compatriots soldiered on, making one great album after another. Not really all that many. I think they only made 10 albums altogether. Uh, Brian Ferry, at the same time, was uh, in, also would embark on solo on a, a series of solo albums. And uh, I think uh, after 1975's Siren, I think he might have given up on the idea of Roxy Music as a group. But then something happened. And two, actually, two things happened. Uh, one thing was punk rock in England, and the other thing was disco around the world. And I think this, this in, reinvigorated Brian Ferry. And so he got the group together again. And he got the group together again. Uh, Siren came out in 75. He did solo albums, more solo albums. And then he reassembled Roxy Music without Brian Ferry in 1979. Uh, with the 1979 Manifesto album, Brian Ferry and Roxy Music are responding to both punk rock and disco. And that makes it a, a special a special kind of uh, <laughs> revival album. Are you guys able to play music at all on your podcast? Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, splice we can put some in. in. If you kind of cue it for us, we'll, t- uh, we'll play whatever you want. Yeah, mention. the opening of the first track I really like. It's just like an Incredible, intro. Incredible, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Brian Ferry is, is, is a remarkably gifted and sophisticated musician, and the title track is the opening track, and it begins with like I think two minutes, a two-minute instrumental before the vocals come in. Uh, I don't know which one is more beautiful, but the instrumental part is certainly wondrous. <laughs> Then the, then the vocal comes in, and the vocal on that track titled Manifesto is Brian Ferry's Manifesto. Uh, Brian Ferry is, is stating his place in the world of punk rock and disco, and uh, he's, he's, he's balancing himself between the two, and he's also expressing to, to his listeners uh, the things he believes in. And, and in, the, in the course of describing those things, uh, he makes some explicit uh, Christian commentary, as well as many very, very witty comments about other people in history uh, who have found them pl- themselves at a place where they had to decide, uh, uh, quo you know, where do I go next? And, and uh, <laughs> it's a wonder, I, I thought it would be appropriate for the podcast, not just because it's called Manifesto, but because this, uh, the idea that, the Manifesto album expresses of an artist questioning himself and figuring out what do I do next, what do I stand for, is very much the point of uh, Make Spielberg Great Again. 
Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I'm grateful just for being introduced to this record, which is incredible. That first track in particular, I do like the vocals, which are uh, gorgeous in their own way. But the instrumental, that first two minutes, yeah, I was so pleased with myself because I, I thought now I'm even more pleased with myself because I thought, you know, this sounds like somebody kind of trying to figure out... Um, disco and punk almost and uh so i i did for the record i did but then you know you're saying it's not emerson lake and palmer and i also thought not on that track but at other points in the record i thought oh um and i like some some prog rock stuff i think there's some great prog rock uh stuff sure, sure, sure. i yeah. thought other points in the record um reminded me of that and then the lyrics to manifesto i'll just read the first stanza i am for a life around the corner that takes you by surprise that comes leaves all you need and more besides i am for a life and time by numbers blast in fast and low add them up account for luck you never know it's uh it's good stuff i mean it Hey, the, the way the way he sings, you never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has so much humor and feeling in it. It's just it's just beautiful. Armin, did people pick up on the Christian themes at the time, or, or was that uh, under the radar? Uh, the to my knowledge, the Manifesto album was a flop. Hmm. Uh, it was different from the previous, the preceding Roxy Music albums. Uh, because because it had uh, it has that disco aspect to it, and rather than the the easily recognizable art rock kind of uh, musicality, so uh, and and perhaps perhaps the original rock music audience had moved on. Uh, it, it was a changed musical world in 1979, so uh, rock music wasn't as popular <laughs> as it once was, so to speak. Uh, never all that popular uh, in America, except I'm, I'm from Detroit, you know. And uh, in 1975, when Roxy's uh, Siren album came out uh, on Detroit FM radio, uh, it was indeed popular. Uh, if you go back to Siren and play the song uh, uh, Both Ends Burning, uh, you will not be able to resist it. It is irresistible. Uh, it, it almost has a, a Motown irres- quality of, of being irresistible. Although it doesn't sound like a Motown record, but it, but it, it has that kind of uh, undeniable, undeniable uh, momentum and rhythm, and uh, just a great thing. So, rock music was not all that popular in the United States when Manifesto came out. Uh, I, I suspect it might have puzzled some people, and then the album that followed it is an album called Flesh and Blood, and that certainly puzzled uh, art rock fans because it was so. It was. It had such sheer beauty in it. Uh, Brian Ferry, in a sense, had stopped experimenting with rock and roll form, and had attached himself to to the essential qualities of R and B that were represented by disco. And Flesh and Blood is not a disco album, but it's it's almost an R and B album, but not quite entirely because there there is a cover version of Eight Miles High of the Birds is Eight Miles Eight Miles High, but uh, at that point Brian Ferry and Roxy had moved into a place of absolute 
just beauty. And and those last two albums, Flesh and Blood and Avalon in 1982, uh, are not are not uh, respected by the original Roxy Music fans. But that's their problem. Uh, they are, they are missing out. Uh, but back to Manifesto. Manifesto, in that sense, is, is a turning point for. Brian Ferry and Roxy Music, because as I said before, it's it's a statement of who he is as an artist, uh, following the uh, following the sea change of punk and disco. And uh, so what are those two? And, what are those two musical forms sort of, sort of represent? I mean, what is it that he's that he's grappling with? Well, well punk rock would be a, a kind of kind of harsh. Acerbic rock and roll that is, that is that also that is always uh, very obviously questioning uh, social and political norms, and Brian Ferry's just the kind of artist. Uh, I mean, he's he's a big Bob Dylan fan, and he's the kind of artist who is is too clever, uh, too sophisticated to be obvious about his politics. Makes his politics obvious. Uh, his politics are kind of elusive, uh, the way Dylan's are. Bob Dylan's politics often are. So he, that's that's a difference with uh, punk rock. There's also a difference, uh, a slight difference in age. Uh, he's 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 slightly older than the punk musicians of the time, uh, such as from the Clash and the Sex Pistols and whatever other groups of the late '70s you want to mention. And uh, there there is the idea about punk rock being uh, very elemental and simple, whereas uh, Rock's Music is, is a, they're, they're a rock and roll band, but they're a, they are a band of, 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 of highly, uh, highly gifted and learned musicians. So in, in, in that sense, he's, he's not, he, he, can't, he can't even disguise the, uh, a connection, a musical connection to punk rock. He's not going to make that kind of music. And yet he, yet being an esthete, he understands why punk rock is great uh, artistically. Hmm. So he respects it. But then at the same time, at the same time, you know, he has to contend with disco, as, as, as everybody did at the time. With disco so so wonderf- wonderfully rhythmic, uh, you know, the most the most, <laughs> the most popular dance music since the waltz. Uh, he has to deal with that because who can who can resist disco? Frankly, he can't. He can't because he knows it's good stuff. So he has to find his place. Uh, he has to be who he is. But he also has to find his place between punk and disco, and that makes that makes it a fascinating album. Uh, I, I would contend that the second track on the album, uh, <clears throat> "Trash," is 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 a, a, an obvious uh, nod to punk rock. Uh, in particular, uh, if you if you if you're one of those people who believes that uh, the punk rock movement began with the New York Dolls in 1973 and their wonderful song called Trash. So Brian Ferry does his version of Trash, but it's a different song entirely. And it's, it's probably, the, probably the most sped up, uh, most quick-tempoed song on the album. And uh, so he does that there. And uh, he does punk rock there. And then he does disco on several, and R&B on several other tracks. But also, I think the most interesting, not most interesting, but one of the most uh, peculiar tracks on the album is the one called uh, Still Falls the Rain. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and in Still Falls the Rain, uh, we, we have 
Brian Ferry, the uh, the art student from Newcastle. I think he's from Newcastle. And uh, in a way, this is a tribute to to his British art heritage. Uh, Still Falls the Rain is <clears throat> named after a poem by Edith Sitwell. Mm. And it's a poem that Edith Sitwell wrote. Uh, she was describing her response to the Blitz during World War II. Mm. And... Uh, and uh, the poem, her poem, also has has ideas about uh, religious, spiritual redemption and rebirth. And so Brian Ferry, being the creative person he is, and by the way, not 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 an artist who's who's afraid to pay tribute to to his uh, forebears, uh, as as noted by the many many covers that he has he has done over the course of his career. Uh, including the uh, start, starting with an album called "These Foolish Things," and even uh, I think in 2001 uh, or 2002, he made an album of Bob Dylan covers uh, called "Dylanesque." Uh, Ferry is never is never reluctant to pay tribute to his forebears, and so in "Still Fall the Rain," "Still Falls the Rain," uh, uh, that's that's a nod to Edith Sitwell, but he turns it into something extraordinary. Uh, the story in Still Falls the Rain is the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and uh, and it's, got, it's got that beautiful line in it where he talks about two minds in one vein. And uh, uh, this is consistent with the idea of manifesto. Uh, an artist is, who's stating, who's figuring out who he is, stating who he is to the world, and understanding that uh, all human beings, even himself, have contradictory natures, and that they they sometimes uh, fight against each other. Uh, it's a beautiful record, uh, great great melody and rhythm in that one too. You guys, anybody, did you listen to that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, absolutely. Okay. We should say that it still falls the rain since uh, you gave that wonderful background on it sounds nothing like any of the other tracks yeah. on the record it's sonically totally distinct kind of uh softer more plaintive um it it does not still falls the rain does not sound like somebody trying to bring together punk and disco i take your word that it sounds like the art what was it art rock art music art rock, art sure. rock. who else is in this art rock genre maybe i can place it somehow through a reference i'm not sure what that sound would be art rock i know pub rock <laughs> this is something That's different good. i take oh genesis were they art rock yeah they're later okay they're later and and, and much lesser okay um, so you're calling them art rock do you consider them glam rock because that's what um that's the title that i i found most associated with them and they would group Roxy with David Bowie, T-Rex, Slade, those sorts of folks. Sure. It's, uh, you know, uh, glam and art rock were kind of were, were simultaneous and they, they blurred, they blurred, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, David Bowie's art rock too. You know, the idea of art rock starts with the Beatles. Uh, the idea that, that you're not just making rock and roll, making music for teenagers to dance to. Uh, but you're also conscious. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's part. It, it comes out of the '60s modernist movement that also is, is can be seen in in cinema in the French New Wave, where you're you're making music that is aware of itself. That's what art rock is. 
and aware of itself as, as an art form, but also as a, as a pop form, as, as something that people are responding to, that groups of people are responding to in society. Uh, and so, so, you know, the uh, glam, glam rock art, rock performers uh, have this kind of consciousness. That, I mean, this, I guess this would also include maybe, maybe one of the progenitors of, of art rock would be a group like Velvet Underground, mm-hmm. you know, which coming, coming out of Andy Warhol, where, where a self-consciousness about art making is paramount. So Roxy Music develops out of that, and the art rock movement was big in England in the in the early seventies. And I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples, I'm, but my 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 head is in Roxy Music at the moment. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. They, apparently, they they, they, the only one. they supported Alex Alice Cooper in in their first major gig in his uh, 1970s tour. Roxy Music supported Alice Cooper. Yeah, uh, and Alice Cooper was, this is the description uh, that I found at the show, he was cavorting with a live boa constrict- constrictor, decapitating and impaling baby dolls to illustrate the lyrical theme of the song Dead Babies, and climaxing the set by using a guillotine to fake the singer's execution. Right. <laughs> He's a minister's son, by the way. <laughs> who, ne- who never left the flock he would say in later years it was all it was all for fun it was all art rock um, sure. well, I'm, I'm not so sure that Alice Cooper was art rock so much as that he was vaudeville yeah <laughs> but, yeah right but he was great at vaudeville and he's sure. a, he's another Detroit native isn't he absolutely sure or Detroit uh, as you all say I don't say Detroit no oh, I thought that was the the native thing was to say Detroit uh-uh. No, I no, I am happy to. I'm happy to correct you on that. No. Thank you, thank you. And, uh, and no, it's it's Detroit. Detroit. That's all. Not not a D. The D, the D is the D. I'm gonna I'm gonna blame the Detroit on on Hollywood. Uh, ah, people not, people not Hollywood. Yes, yeah, people not from Detroit. Uh, uh, caricaturing it as 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 a form as they think as they think. Uh, Black southern southern red black Detroiters would say it. Oh, I didn't no, even really. think it was a black thing necessarily. Uh, I thought, uh, what did you think of the? Um, were you around for some of the early like house techno innovation in Detroit? What did you think of that stuff when it was happening? I was I was not around. I was in New York at that time. Mm. Were you aware uh, of it though? I yeah, I was aware of it, but I wasn't I wasn't into it. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Detroit seems to have this whole kind of musical universe that um, the rest of the country finds out about only a bit later. So I'm, I always felt like there was this kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of like secret Detroit music scene, whether it was techno or Detroit had its own rap scene that was kind of distinct from uh, the rest of the midwest rap scene and the obviously like the gories and the punk and garage stuff and the post motown stuff or whatever so anyway that's a tangent i'm sorry i've always <laughs> just uh, wondered about that well listen listen i i i grew up in detroit uh during the motown era and uh and i i, I feel blessed to have, to have been there at that moment uh, which also was the moment of uh, what what someone called uh, oh God what was that phrase I liked um, oh shit uh, <laughs> there was a phrase someone used calling the uh, that period also being uh, the 
the great period of art cinema. So uh, I, 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 I've always, you know, as a Motown kid, as a Motown kid who was, who was able to see art cinema on television because TV was different when I was growing up. Uh, that's part of my manifesto. Uh, those, those are the things that I respond to and I'm interested in, in writing about. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, music that moves me and, and cinema that moves me. Would you say that uh, Roxy Music uh, has a primacy of emotionality? That that's part of what, that even though it's supposed to be, you know, sort of avant-garde, um, that it it's not it's not going for cleverness in the way that some um, hip music does. It's it's trying to appeal to emotion. Well, you know, music music like humor is very subjective, and uh, and I I respond I respond to Roxy music uh, with strong emotion. Uh, it, it, it speaks to me, and uh, certainly his Brian Ferry's lyrics do. His, his, certainly his vocals do. But I'm I'm just I'm I'm thrilled at the interplay of the musicians in Roxy Music. Uh, it's I don't feel this way about every every group I like, but Roxy Music is one of the groups that I I always felt if, if I were a musician uh, with with my half forgotten piano lessons. If I were a musician, that's a group I would have wanted to play with. Uh, but I, I think I, I do have a, an emotional response to them. Uh, a song, a song like one of the great Roxy Music opuses is a song called Mother of Pearl. And uh, I find Mother of Pearl to be extremely moving. Uh, but but music is, responses to music is, are, is, is a subjective and very personal response. Uh, music is more subjective than film. No, nah, no, nah, all our all responses to art are subjective, but we can but we can analyze them. Of course, of course. I just mean that you, the way you phrased it, suggests that maybe the the formal qualities of film are. Um, I mean, I don't find it hard. I I don't find it inconceivable that music is um, more subjective. Certainly, there's a, uh, there's something more aloof, less. Uh, something both more formal in the mathematical sense and yet more immediate and more aloof about music than about film? Uh, I, I don't feel that way. <laughs> but uh, I will say that uh, what's, music is almost ineffable or indescribable uh, when, when you're moved by music. You can't, you can't quite describe it. Uh, because it's, there is no there's no verbal language to describe it with you, you simply have to feel it yeah. and and uh, musicians are working on emotions uh, so uh, you know it's difficult to express emotion in music uh, but that's that's certainly uh, why why we care about the musicians we do care about because they move us right, um, right. you know we're, you know we're moved by Tchaikovsky I'm moved by Tchaikovsky uh, I'm moved by it, uh, and so that's and that, that's an emotion. <laughs> I'm not afraid of emotion. If, that, if, if art has taught me anything, is that you need not be afraid of emotion. I, I think it is a very adolescent, juvenile, sophomore attitude to think that uh, 
one's response of art response to art should not be an emotional response. Uh, nothing wrong with it. Nothing to be afraid of. Uh, this may take us back to Spielberg. That's <laughs> just just to repeat what we touched on before. I think uh, people who who always uh, disrespect or question Spielberg's films, I mainly they don't like. Uh, they're afraid of what his films bring out of them. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's, it's a good thing when when, when people cry at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I um, it was thinking about this and. So famously, Freud had problems with music because it made him feel things and it was difficult to, to dissect why, right? And I always think uh, with Freud, there's a great bit in a letter of Wittgenstein's uh, where he's writing to Norman Malcolm. And he writes, I too was greatly impressed when I first read Freud. He's extraordinary. Of course, he's full of fishy thinking and his charm and the charm of his subject is so great that you may be easily fooled. He always stresses what great forces in the mind, what strong prejudices work against the idea of psychoanalysis. But he never says what an enormous charm that idea has for people, just as it had for Freud himself. There may be strong prejudices against uncovering something nasty, but sometimes it is infinitely more attractive than it is repulsive. All this, of course, doesn't detract from Freud's extraordinary scientific achievement, only extraordinary scientific achievements have a way these days of being used for the destruction of human beings. I mean, their bodies or their souls or their intelligence. So mm. hold on to your brains. <laughs> so what's that from again, Phil? So it's a letter of Wittgenstein's to Norman Malcolm. From a letter, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Freud may have caused more problems than he saw. <laughs> so, yeah, and 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 I think, I think in my experience, I've, I've noticed that people don't like to be uh, <laughs> challenged or confused or, or made made uncertain. Uh, people like to feel that they've got it all under control, and uh, sometimes when a when a movie a really good movie can make people feel that you're not as smart as you think you are. And so they don't like that. Movie. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that was sometimes the case with, uh, that's almost always, always the case with Godard because we're not as smart as he is. But uh, sometimes that's the case with Spielberg. And I think of, uh, I go back to the Sugarland Express. Uh, you can ask yourself, who is the, who is the hero of Sugarland Express? And, and in some sense, the hero of Sugarland Express is not uh, Goldie Hawn, but it's uh, the police captain Tanner, played by Ben Johnson. Uh, he's this this figure of, of authority, this paternal this paternal like figure of, of authority, uh, who is the hero because he's the one that, for as long as he can, uh, saves the lives or of the lovers on the lamb, prevents them from being killed so soon. Until until it's taken out of his hands, uh, but the way that the Goldie Hawn character uh, Lugene, the way she depends on Captain Tanner uh, to keep this this road chase going, and also to sustain her hope in in reuniting with her child, uh, that's that's the kind of figure in a Spielberg movie that that his detractors are not comfortable dealing with. Um, it, it also goes, it kind of goes to the point of uh, what's, what's uh, puzzling and uh, disappointing about his, his worship of Obama, because Captain Tanner is not deified in the Sugarland Express, 
In fact, Spielberg, being an, an artist of, of his generation, uh, part of that uh, American Renaissance group of filmmakers from the early 70s, uh, he has a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, skepticism about cops, as, as that generation often did. But at the same time, he recognizes uh, that the police captain is, a, is an authentic American figure and a figure who, who rightly deserves respect for, for the way he, he keeps things, uh, he keeps society, he keeps civilization going. Armin, this has been terrific. I, I wanted to ask if as a, a final gift to the manifesto podcast you could do an all-time impromptu better than for us so <laughs> tell me i want to know in your estimation what is uh you know don't overthink it but what is a film that comes to mind that was unconscionably overpraised and what is the corollary film that was unconscionably underappreciated that was better than uh, the critically loved one? Uh, well, Jacob, those, those things those things change every day. Not change every day, but they're, uh, I, I have new priorities every day if I was asked to make such a list. So this, this certainly is not, it's not, I can't chisel this in stone. I understand, I understand. Uh, Oh geez, I don't. I don't know. At the moment, at the moment, I, I think maybe the most overpraised, overrated film that comes to mind would be All the President's Men, and I think that because uh, because the situation that we that we find ourselves in, uh, the the destruction of of American news media, I think starts there. Plus, like like Lincoln, I think formally, uh, aesthetically, it's 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 lousy. Uh, you know, it, it tells the uh, story of Woodward and Bernstein uh, and their uh, and their uh, their Nixon mission with the with Watergate scandal. Right. Uh, it tells that point of view as 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 a kind of thriller, but it's a dull thriller. I mean, mostly you're sitting there just watching people talk. It's got very little action in it, and uh, and the director Alan Pakula is is not a he's not an action filmmaker. Uh, in my mind, he's not really a very good filmmaker at all, but uh, he's competent, I guess. He has a certain amount of competence. But that's, I think that's an overrated film, not because it's good filmmaking. You know, I, I don't think there's good filmmaking in it. There's good, I don't think there's good storytelling or, or editing in it. Uh, but it's got a great cinematographer, uh, Gordon Willis, uh, best known for shooting the Godfather movies. The movie looks good, but it, but it moves like, uh, you know, like a snail. So that's a very overrated film. Um, I don't know something something that's uh, terribly underrated. Uh, well, there there are a lot of those too. Um, but we'll take it back to Spielberg, and I'll say Amistad. Mm. I'll say Amistad because uh, it's, it's I think it's just unquestionably eh, the best the best film ever to deal with slavery. And uh, and certainly the best film, I, I think it's probably one of the very best films to be about American history, because it's also about American history in a, in a not in a political or, or nationalistic sense, but, but Spielberg in, in his great period 
is interested in somehow expressing the soul of American experience. And all, all the characters in Amistad are, 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 are spiritual figures in, in a way, uh, despite it being a movie about, about the history of, of emancipation. And, uh, but it's also, it's, it is primarily, a, I think, a spiritual film. And uh, I think that's, it's gone very, very underrated. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember after uh, Amistad came out, I think it was after that, I was at a film festival and sitting around with a bunch of reviewers and we started talking about Spielberg. And, and one of them said in complete seriousness that Spielberg's best film was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I thought this, this, is, this is somebody who just doesn't take movies seriously, let alone take Spielberg seriously. Uh, Raiders has its qualities, but uh, up against something like Amistad, up against something like E.T., I mean, it's just, it's just that that can't not that cannot possibly be his best film, uh, Raiders. So I think uh, Amistad is terribly, terribly underrated. Thank you. And more, more people should know it. Yeah. Um, I thought you. Could, okay. I thought you were going to ask me something different, I was, and I was, I was ready to say, as a, as a better than, <laughs> just say that uh, Robert Altman's USA, uh, Robert Altman's Nashville, is better than Dos Passos's USA trilogy. Oh, and I, and I respect, I, I, I respect and, and like the USA trilogy. By the way, that's not a knock on it, because uh, Nashville is so great. There's no point in saying it's better than some lousy. The greatest, the art. greatest Altman film. Yes, yes. There's no yeah. point in saying it's better than a lousy film. Right. I just say it's better than another great work of art. Hmm. Right. Well, Armin, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, and at the risk of, um, I don't think it'll embarrass you. I'll probably just embarrass myself. But I am, uh, I am grateful to you for um, sticking by your guns all these years, which I'm sure is not something you see as a, a favor to me. But it seems to me that at um, at many different junctures, it couldn't have been the easy thing to do, but it did teach me something about art and my responsibilities as a human being that I have not forgotten. And, um, you know, I'm sure I'm, a, an imperfect executor of the lessons I took from it, which are my own lessons. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I'm grateful for having them. So may you all continue to be people. And until next time. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>